Welcome back, everybody, to the next episode in our Disruptors by Delphi series. I am incredibly excited to introduce our next guest. He is the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, as well as the founder of Global Macro Investor, Mr. Ralph Powell. Ralph, thanks so much for, for joining me and doing this today. Always good to see you, Kevin. Looking forward so to I think it's going to be really fun. So one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring you on for this was because I've been following your work for the better part of a decade now. And I can confidently say that you are among one of, if not the most kind of foremost thought leader within the global macro space. And I think one of the big reasons for that is the way in which you develop and think about building a macro framework, right? So before we get into the meat of what your current outlook is, if you could just take maybe a minute or two just to explain how you think about building a macro framework and why that's so important. All you're trying to do in the investment game is put probability in your favor. That's all we do. And it's trying to figure out, okay, how do I get to a, tra a trade idea? Most people just kind of bring them out of nowhere and think, well, I just want to do this trade. Maybe it's based on technical analysis, Maybe it's based on some fundamental piece of news, but I do it in a very different way. I take a very structured approach, which is, what is the long-term secular trend? I almost never trade against my secular trend. So I'll either go with my secular trend or not at all. Then once I've got a secular trend, the single most important driver of all asset prices is the business cycle. And I use the ISM survey as the guide to the business cycle, which is basically just mirrors GDP, but on a monthly basis. So I use the business cycle to analyze where markets are going. So the year-on-year -year rate of change of almost all markets is actually the same as the ISM survey. It's kind of a really weird thing, but that's how it works. So I, the business cycle is the most important driver of asset prices. The secular trend then gives you what you want to do. So secular trends are often, in my world, debt demographics, technology, things like that. You need to have an eye on those trends. Then you have an eye on the business cycle. And then you get down to, okay, what do I want to do? And what trades are there? And then I tend to use technical analysis, sentiment analysis, um, flows, that kind of stuff to then get the odds further in my favor. So I try and build the whole thesis out. I also look at history. I look at a lot of history and say, when has things been similar? And I don't expect a complete repeat, but you know, humans are humans. We're reacting the same way to roughly the same set of circumstances. Um, and so I, I tend to look for those kind of setups. So if I can explain all of it, I tend to have a very high probability of being right. But those kind of big setups come infrequently. I'm not a frequent trader. I'm more of a big picture, macro, long-term position taker. Perfect. And so given that, using that macro framework that you build, where are we right now? What is your current outlook? I know we got a, a great presentation that you're gonna walk us through, but really curious to hear your thoughts because I know you have some pretty strong ideas right now. Yeah, so the market is currently obsessed by inflation. It's in, it obsessed by the central banks. It's obsessed by interest rates going super high. We saw Bill Ackman out today, yesterday saying, you know, it, it, in, interest rates need to go up to the moon. I step back from the narrative and start looking at, okay, what is the reality of that? And I think the reality is, and I'll show it in the presentation, that what we've actually done is utterly destroy demand already. We've had the largest rate of change of interest rates in history, the largest rate of change of commodities in history. Um, we've had the largest rate of change of mortgage rates, all sorts of stuff, a very perky dollar as well, a strong dollar. 
That makes a big difference to this. Those things tend to be financial conditions tightening. We can see it in the equity market. We can see it in the housing market. You can see it in the crypto market. Is conditions have tightened dramatically. The market's still looking at the previous CPI prints, and CPI is a lagging indicator. The forward-looking stuff of the business cycle is collapsing. And that's interesting to me because that fits in with my secular framework, which is disinflationary, slower growth over time, um, with this aging population, demographics, all of this stuff all coming together. So that's why I'm really paying attention right now. I think the market's probably wrong. And I think that it's going to set up for a whole bunch of opportunities as the Fed pivot fast. And the economy goes into recession much quicker than anybody expects. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the perfect setup. So without further ado, I think we jump right into it. What, what's the, uh, let's see the presentation. Yeah, and this is just a small fraction of the actual framework. It's some of the stuff I put together for the last Global Macro Investor. Um, but it's just that, you know, you could double and triple click on pretty much everything here. And there's 20 odd, 30 years of work behind it. So my thesis is demand destruction is what's going on now. Most people have a tendency, economists, people in the commodity markets, most people tend to look at supply. So we know there's a lot of supply restrictions um, in commodities right now, but people don't realize that the other part of the equation is demand. So most people assume demand is stable and supply is the variable. And I find that demand tends to be the bigger part of the equation. So even if the supply situation is very tight, if demand has been destroyed, then the picture can change super fast. And we've seen it many times in the past, whether it was the 1970s and, and how people look at money. People look at money supply. We hear that all the time. People don't look at money demand. And money demand is the real thing here. And money demand, we can often see through things like velocity of money. That shows the demand for money as opposed to the supply of money. And if there's no demand for money, it tends to be a deflationary or disinflationary environment. If there is demand for money, then it tends to become inflationary. And we haven't seen that. Anyway, so let's look at the big picture. Why everything is happening in my point of view. So the aging population is well understood by many. The baby boom co cohort was the largest cohort of people ever at one age in all history. It was particularly prevalent in the United States because Europe after World War II didn't have as many kids and Japan didn't have kids after World War II. So they're more aging populations. But the US has this population baby boom that then started come through as the baby boomers who are now starting to get to retirement age. So the average baby boomer is now about 70 years old and they've been coming out of the labor force since about the age of 55 as the earlier retirees came through. So that was about 2000 when they started leaving the labor force. As they left the labor force, what you notice with old people and people's parents look at them and look at their spending habits versus their spending habits of yourselves or people in their 40s or 50s, those people tend to spend a lot more than retired people. The reason being is they have a finite pool of capital, their retirement savings or their pension, of which they need to live an unspecified amount of time. Nobody knows when they're going to die and longevity of life keeps rising. So you never really have enough money. So what happens, the older you get, the, the, uh, the less demand for goods and services you have and the less you're also actively involved in the economy. So velocity of money falls with the labor force participation rate, which is a reflection of the demographics. Also, 
because demographics are baked in the cake, we basically know how many kids everybody's had ever since. You can actually forward look the labor force participation rate. And what you get is future velocity of money that keeps falling. So it's telling us that it's very difficult to generate structural inflation in the economy. You'll get periods like we've had now, but structural inflation, you're fighting the headwind of velocity of, of, um, of demographics. Also with demographics, if you think of the millennials who are the next largest population, that millennial population, well, that's a real issue because they're going into the labor force and competing with their parents for jobs. So there's a gigantic amount of people in the labor force at the same time, which has been very rare because the, the baby boomers have been trying to stay in the labor force to keep their incomes up because the pensions aren't big enough and the long-term effects of, of low interest rates and, um, and um, inflation have meant that these people have had to stay somewhat within the labor force. So they're competing with their parents. They've also found that they're competing with the global workforce because of globalization, and that's cheaper workers. So that's been really hard for them. In addition, they're competing with the robots and AI. So technology is relentless in its removal of people from the labor force. Um, and so that's a really difficult situation that we've seen, and that doesn't help velocity of money. You can see going forwards how that works with CPI. We've got this spike in inflation currently that was caused from the back end of the pandemic. I think that gets unwound as CPI follows the births deaths as the percentage of total population. And it leads by 30 years, and it shows us that inflation over time should fall, and we head towards some sort of structural deflation, which I think is still on the cards in the years ahead. And if you think about the acceleration of technology, it's telling you that too. And what that's really done is destroyed wages over time. As I said, if you think about these poor people in the workforce competing with each other for jobs <clears throat> in record numbers, competing with a globalized workforce, and competing with technology, they've basically not had wage increases since the 70s. So wages have not gone up in real terms. So there's been no productivity gains for the average worker in the entire United States. They've gained 0.2%. It's an astonishing thing, and it shows the dangers of all of these big secular trends and what it means. It basically means you're on a hamster wheel for life for the average person, and that's a terrifying thought. And if you're on a hamster wheel for life and your wages haven't gone up, but asset prices have gone up, and asset prices have gone up from central banks and other issues, which I'll come to, what you've got is an increase in debt. That debt has basically offset the increase in asset prices over the last 40 years. So people have borrowed money to try and make themselves wealthier because it's, their wages didn't go up, but fixed assets did. And we've got the most indebted economy in all history now. Also, the thing about labor force participation rates going forwards is it actually mirrors personal consumption. Personal consumption over time should be falling because, again, older people tend to consume less. Now, you can see it's volatile. It's volatile for two reasons. One was the Trump tax cuts that went into the last election. Then the, the collapse from the pandemic reverting roughly back to trend. And then the reverse of the pandemic after all of the handouts. As that washes out, 
we should see consumption yet again fall, which lowers the trend rate of GDP in the US economy, which lowers the rate of inflation, etc. Now, the other thing that's happened, the super trend, is the Fed balance sheet is actually an offset to the labor force participation rate fall. So as demographics has, has driven these people out of the workforce over time, and they borrowed more money, the Fed have had to offset that. So these things are hugely correlated. So the Fed, Fed balance sheet is basically offsetting what would have been the loss of demand in the economy, which is why it's been so prevalent and it on goes. And it's been, I've been following this for the last five or six years and it's worked perfectly. And it continues to expect that the balance sheet shall increase. And you know, over the next few years, we'll start hitting nine and a half trillion, ten trillion dollars, and we probably keep going for a while longer. So that tells you that the economy over time don't, doesn't stand on its own two feet, and the Fed need to keep injecting money into the economy, which drives up asset prices, which leads to more people taking on more debt so they can participate in that because house prices and equities and everything have got more expensive, and we continue this ridiculous loop. And the only way out of it is what's happening over time is you get the um, real rates need to remain negative so you can slowly erode the value of the debt over time as the population works itself out, which we saw in the 1940s and 50s, which is a, another whole topic for another day. Just to show what I mean again about the, um, the fact that the central bank balance sheet drive up asset prices, it's a pretty clear correlation. And I know a lot of people say it's spurious, but my God, it's worked absolutely perfectly. I think of this as actually a decrease in the value of the denominator. If the value of the denominator is, if the denominator is the purchasing power of your dollar, then if you print more dollars, then the purchasing power goes down. That's the supply side of the equation. And the supply side of the equation here, um, we can see what it does, that the purchasing power of the dollar goes down and assets go up. This is consistent everywhere in the world, everywhere the central bank um, um, balance sheet increases. And it works across all asset prices, essentially, whether it's gold, whether it's real estate, um, it, it affects crypto, it affects stocks. And what's amazing is real estate is so good for this that I've looked at ECB money printing and then looked at German real, real estate, same chart, Swedish real estate, Swedish money printing, Canadian real estate, Canadian money printing, US real estate, UK real estate, Australian real estate, they're all the same. So what they're saying is every time the Fed print money, the purchasing power of the dollar goes down, which makes it optically look like the value of these assets are rising. Most of them are actually not rising in central bank balance sheet terms. So it makes it harder and harder for those poor people whose wages haven't gone up to stay up. So they keep borrowing money to do it. And it's a mess. And this is what's creating the 1% versus the 99. Obviously, GDP is the net outcome of all of the things I've talked about. Now we've got this, obviously, the weird shenanigans in the, in the price action due to the pandemic, but GDP really, really mirrors the labor force participation rate. And it tells us that GDP growth over time is gonna keep falling and falling and falling. So we're in a slow growth world driven by demographics and debt. The central banks need to keep propping it all up and that keeps going into the future and that's baked in the cake. So that's the secular structural view. But now let's talk about demand and where we are in the business cycle. The business cycle is looking like it is about to roll over 
really, really hard. And I talked about the massive monetary tightening we've had. This is the biggest monetary tightening in all recorded history in the shortest period of time. We've got rising commodity costs, rising interest rates, and a strong dollar. Those th three things together are extraordinary. So here is the, a combination of those three against the ISM, and it's already pricing in a recession. ISM below 47 is a recession. It's saying the nine-month forward ISM is going to be 37, and it's still going. So it kind of feels that we're going to go into a very sharp, urgent recession, and that's what the, mar the markets are picking up. That's what crypto is picking up. That's what equities have been picking up. Equities are currently pricing the ISM on a year-on-year -year basis at around 49. So they've got further to go to price in some of this, but the com comparisons get easier because the market went up a lot this time last year going forwards. So I'm looking closer towards the low, and I'll come into that in a bit. So let's look at the rising commodity costs of the equation and why this is so bad. Food prices, the largest increase in food prices since 1919, it goes back to the 1970s. So this means if your food bill goes up and your wages haven't been going up, therefore you have, well, if wages have been going up in inflation adjusted terms about 5% and food has gone up at 9%, you can afford less other goods because you keep consuming food. So food is one of these inelastic goods that destroys demand in the economy. And as I said, your wages have gone down in inflation-adjusted terms because wages have been rising at about 5.5%, but everything else is rising faster. And that led people to take out more credit again. So credit's been increasing, and credit's been increasing about 6% a year um, right now, and that's offsetting the difference between commodity prices, cost of living prices, and incomes. The other thing people did was save a load of money over the pandemic because they didn't spend it as much and they were given direct transfer payments. They've now pretty much eroded it and gone back to trend. Now, you really want to see the personal savings rate increasing, which has been doing because of the retirees. But we're back to where they were. So all net gains have gone. They spent all their money. They've started borrowing money. That tells you demand is about to be destroyed and that any of the retail sales numbers that have been perkier are going to start dying off pretty fast. My view is that for once, the US consumer won't be saving the day. And it's kind of a, something that's believed to be a truism in markets is the consumer always saves everything in America. I think we've probably broken the consumer. So input costs are also rising. So that was the consumer level. But now let's look at all other commodities. Now, we saw the largest rise of commodities again for decades. The rate of change of commodities now is falling sharply, which is why I think inflation falls sharply. The year-on-year -year rate of change matters the most, not the absolute level of oil, for example. It's the year-on-year -year rate. That's turned down. We will see CPI turned down with a vengeance soon. But we're still paying for that spike that we had. And that spike was dramatic. That spike translated through to PPI inflation. So producer inflation, input costs went up dramatically. Now, if you invert those, well, guess what? Higher prices lead to economic slowdowns. So because you've got this indebted old economy, the moment you raise prices, demand gets destroyed. And this is, again, pricing the ISM down at 30, which would be the worst ISM print since 1974, which was an equally short, sharp recession 
where the ISM fell from 56, roughly where it is today, to 30 in four months, which is pretty much what I expect now, something that the markets don't yet understand. But I talked about demand destruction. One of the things that keeps on people's eyes, and as we're speaking today, the oil price is up um, about 3% at $113, but the business cycle will start to lead year and rate of oil lower. And I fear that oil might be the final shoe to drop, which will wipe out people's fears over inflation. I think oil may well fall. Now, I understand the structural supply issue for oil, but I still think the demand story is the bigger story for now. And we'll look at oil again. You know, we'll think about oil again in 18 months' time once we've cleared through the demand issue. But if the ISM goes down, oil's going down. And the ISM, by the forward-looking indicators, is about to plummet. And oil demand is slowing. You just don't see it yet because it's only in the short-term rate of change you're starting to see it. Now, some of this is the China effect um, as China's shut down somewhat. So we need to see where those numbers actually pan out. My guess is we will see somewhat of a slowdown in oil demand, which will help confirm the picture that I'm setting up here. Copper is already starting to price a slowdown. It's pricing the ISM at 50. And if it goes any lower, it's going to start pricing the ISM in full recession mode. So I, I do expect copper to come lower. And I think the year-on-year -year rate of change will follow that of some of these other indicators starting to forecast a much lower price. The other big thing in the equation here has been the dollar. The dollar is the global wrecking ball. You see, the dollar is 87% of all global trade. But the US is only 25% of the global economy. So you have this very leveraged effect that if the dollar goes up, everybody gets killed. And also, if the dollar goes up, there tends to be a default in other countries because there's a shortage of dollars globally through the offshore dollar, euro dollar markets. So we saw the first default was that of Sri Lanka, where the game of musical chairs, the dollar goes up, everybody panics because they've got dollar debts and they're, they're earning money in domestic currency. So suddenly the debt goes up, they need to borrow more dollars, they can't get the dollars and somebody defaults. It's a musical chairs game that always happens when the dollar goes up. The dollar's gone up significantly, I think it backs off for a while now, but the wrecking ball is already baked in the cake. So here's, <coughs> here's the dollar, it's telling us that commodity prices should revert back to where they came from in year-on-year -year rate of change, i.e. inflation from commodities goes back to zero. And I think eventually we will see it go to a negative number and we'll see deflationary pulse coming out of commodities. But there's a while to come, <clears throat> and I know nobody believes in me yet, so it's not a popular view. But either way, it tells us inflation is coming lower. Also, the dollar is a fantastic driver of the global business cycle. And it's telling us that the global business cycle is somewhere around recession levels, about 47. This is the ISM. You saw it did something similar in 2015, where it dragged the ISM lower. Um, it also did something in 2018, which is a very similar setup to now, where it fell sharply. And then, uh, sorry, the dollar rallied sharply, so it's inverted here. And the ISM followed suit really fast. And the Fed pivoted and started cutting rates. And the dollar was a big driver of that. The other part of the equation of demand destruction is the rising rates. So we've had the commodity prices. We've had the dollar. The third part is the rising rates borrowing costs. This is the most shocking chart I think I've ever seen in macro. This is LIBOR. So this is just 12-month money, year-on-year -year rate of change. So one-year borrowing costs. One-year borrowing costs have gone up 
800%. Now, people say, yeah, but rates are still really low. I don't think people really understand what this means. If you have taken out borrowing, whether you're a corporation, a foreign government, a bank, or anybody who's on interest payments, your interest payments have gone up eightfold. So if the numbers were, if your number was, it was a million dollars to service your debt, it's gone up to eight million dollars. That is an extraordinary change. We've had similar in the past, but nothing of this magnitude. And that really destroys demand. And if I look at it another way, people tell me that the financial conditions aren't tight enough yet. Financial conditions here on this chart are inverted. But financial conditions lag. They lag things like this year-on-year -year rate of change. And the financial conditions here on this chart are telling us that we're going to see a massive move. Now, this chart is cut off at a 300% increase in, in um, rates because of scaling effects. It will tell us we'd have the most tight financial conditions in all history. And we can use a number of these charts against it, and they'll all tell us the same thing, is we have massively over-tightened. And that's without the Fed doing much. That was just the markets doing it of their own accord as the inflation narrative took hold. So the markets have done their job. They've killed inflation, but they've given us a big recession in exchange. The other one I've looked at before is the two-year bond yield rate of change. This was spectacularly good at calling the bond market rally um, back in 2018 and also the fall in the ISM and the move towards recession. Now, I didn't expect it to be a pandemic, but I fully expected a recession. The yield curve inverted back in 2018 and financial conditions by two-year rate of change. Most money in the world is, is pegged to the two-year yield. The two-year rate of change was the largest in all history. And guess what? The economy followed suit. Now, here we are again with the largest ever rate of change and the economy will fall suit. I think this chart lags a bit, so it sh should be moved a bit closer. But it tells us that this is a probably a 2022-2023 event um, as opposed to what this chart is telling us is a 2024 event. But let's see how this plays out. But I think, as you can tell, the move is going to be sh so sharp, people have no idea what's coming. So how does this all work? Well, in 2018, we had something very similar. The Fed had been raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet. The yield covered inverted. It happened again in 2019. Inflation expectations were running high. This was the point when Jeff Gunlack was saying, Interest rates are going to 6%. That was at the top of the Chart of Truth channel. LIBOR had risen at the fastest pace in history, and everybody said financial conditions were too loose still because everyone was looking at the lagging Goldman Index. I argued then that we'd actually sowed the seeds of a recession and the conditions were super tight. The conditions were super similar. The dollar had risen fast, 10% in 10 months. Oil had risen, was up 100% year on year. The ISM had come off, was still around the 55, 56 level where it is today. Oil then cracked, which I think is going to happen, and it fell 45% in two months. Bonds started sniffing it out, just like, and I wrote some of this presentation last month, and I've been expecting that shift where bond yields start falling while equities fall. That shift happened about three, four weeks ago, and I think it continues now as we go into the repricing of equities um, and bond yields start to fall as bonds realize that everything is over-tightened. That happened in 2018, and then equities puked. In the last six weeks, equities plunged in 2018, and the Fed pivoted. 
and inflation then rolled over. Now, that situation is very similar to the situation I've seen many times in the past, and I'll come on to that in a bit. But you can see CPI, if I look at commodity prices, they're already telling us CPI is about to come lower. It seems to be slightly lagged, but it's coming. If I therefore put it by six months, it's telling us that CPI is about to roll over and roll over hard. I think CPI should be at around 4% and not about the, the 8% it is today. Also, the ISM and the central bank balance sheets. As the ISM starts falling, the central bank balance sheets should stop contracting, which is what they're trying to do now, and eventually start expanding. And they'll start expanding really once we see the ISM hit 50. That's when the Fed tends to panic. That's when they panicked in 2018. That's when they panicked in 2001. That's when they panicked in 2008. That's when they panicked in 1984. That's when they panicked in 1974. And the thing that's mispriced here is bonds. If we know that the forward-looking indicators for ISM are suggesting it comes somewhere between, let's say, 30 and 40, i.e. a shocking change and a severe recession, then the rate of change of bond yields is still looking at inflation, which is rolling over. And it's rare that bonds get this wrong, but it got it wrong, in, um, it, it got it wrong severely in 2000 because inflation was running really high then. The Fed were cutting all the way into that inflation in the end because um, economic growth had rolled over. And I think we'll see something similar, and bond yields look to be one of the best trades in the world right now to be long bonds, particularly in this liquidation phase when everything else you own turns to shit, including some of the commodity trends. Now, 2018, I don't know if this chart's going to hold out properly, but it's similar, is 2018, the NASDAQ looked very similar to the NASDAQ now. It plunged into some final low, a capitulation low. That capitulation low was when the ISM collapsed, the Fed pivoted, and then growth stocks and crypto. Don't forget, that was the exact low in Bitcoin. Um, and I think we're going to set up for something similar now. The question is, is how long will this recession be? And that's very difficult to know. I'm using actually 1974 as my basis. 1974, we saw a very similar setup with very high oil prices due to supply restraints. That was the Arab oil embargo. We saw inflation skyrocketing. We saw rates skyrocketing, the dollar going up, and then suddenly the whole lot unwound as the Fed over-tightened and the economy collapsed. And as I said, it went from 56 on the ISM to negative 30, the fastest recession we'd ever reached in, and the, one of the deepest recessions since, I guess, since 1929, 1930, 1931. Um, and it was over as fast as it started. And thing, stocks went up rapidly from there. And eventually, we had a second inflation shock. I don't know what plays out going forwards, but I don't think it's the 1970s secondary inflation shock. I understand commodity prices might remain high, but I think the rate of change will slow down, that inflation goes back down to the level suggested by demographics, which will be somewhere around the, you know, between 1% and 3% range. And I think, therefore, bond yields do the same. There is a chance that bond yields go back down to zero. Now, 1984 was the other setup that was very similar. We had an extremely strong dollar. We had high interest rates. We had an equity market that was falling. 
Um, and then the economy fell off a cliff. CPI was high. The economy fell off a cliff. The oil price collapsed and um, the Fed cut into a recession period, what looked like it was going to be a recession period. The Fed managed to forestall it, but that eventually led to the Plaza Accord in 1985, which stopped the dollar destroying growth going forwards. And I think we'll get potentially another big dollar rally uh, next year. And that, I think, that all of the central banks are going to have to do something about, or it's going to cause a much longer recession than the 1974 example. 2001 was the other example, 2001, where we saw similar kinds of setups with high inflation, the Fed cutting into that inflation, the equity market collapsing. That went on much longer. And it went on much longer because of the unwind of the equity market. And I think that there was the debt buildup was still high, but not as high as it is now. So the Fed, I don't know, I don't know. 2001 is an example of what I'm scared of, that this episode now goes on for 18 months, two years. So I would mark that as, okay, if we get a capitulation low now, then maybe there's a big rally and then another collapse to come because the economy remains in recession. 2008 was a slow burner, but then the Fed discovered the balance sheet. And again, around that time, we had high inflation, as it always is at the peak of the cycle, interest rates rising, financial conditions rising, everything collapses very similar to now. That uncovered a financial crisis. I don't see the evidence of that. People are waiting for what is the shoe to drop for this cycle. I think the shoe is the economy, like 1974. And it's not a financial event, more an economic event, and probably the US consumer event. Now, in 2008, the Fed discovered the new trick, which was the balance sheet. Now, if you understand the balance sheet, as you expand it, automatically makes the S&P and other risk assets reprice higher because the denominator's fallen, that stopped the rot because the collateral in the system goes up in price and everything kind of resets. And every time the Fed have used the balance sheet since, it's had exactly the same impact, which is an immediate um, turn in asset prices. It had an immediate turn once it was used in 2009. It had an immediate turn when it was used in, um, in the pandemic. And it had an immediate turn when it stopped, you know, when, when the market started to sniff it out in 2018. I don't see any reason why the Fed won't do it again. So I'm anticipating a short, very sharp recession and a return to use of the Fed balance sheet, direct transfer payments to give money directly to poorer people, um, and the Fed having to support some parts of the markets again. Um, but let's see how it plays out. The main point being is, We've got the worst ahead of us. It's not fully priced in by markets. It's going to be faster than people expect. It's going to be more severe than people expect. And then we can look out looking forwards. So that's my pretty horrific story from here. How does, that, how, how does it play out for stuff like crypto? Well, the crypto story is still amazing, right? The crypto story is still a technological adoption curve. It's still Metcalfe's law. It's a slow year for adoption. But adoption's actually been sideways. People haven't left the crypto ecosystem like they did in 2018, which is why we've had a much more of a sloppy sideways range. And I think that adoption continues. And if it continues this way, you know, by the end, by the by the time we get to 2030, we end up with five billion people or four billion people using crypto. This chart's actually been updated since, and we found that the rate of adoption was even faster. Last year we had a, about 186 percent 
rate of adoption. You can see what that's like compared to the internet. Overall, it's, it's about twice the speed of internet adoption. And that's truly extraordinary. And it tells us that going forwards, even though the internet, as it becomes a more adopted network, the rate of growth comes down, but the numbers become huge. And that's what's important to the valuation of the market cap of crypto. So again, if we look at the, these updated numbers, even if we assume some slowdown, whether it slows down by the same percentage change that the internet did after year six, starting at 5 million users, took year six after that, it started slowing down to 43%. If we adjust it by the same amount, we get to 76% growth in crypto. We still get to 2.8 billion users in the next four years. If we slow it down to match that of the internet, we get 1.2 billion users. Um, and the internet at that stage was at 500 million. So you can see the dramatic increase. And this is what increases the value of crypto. This is Metcalfe's law. This is network adoption. And what's, what we're also finding is technology, each one at a time, comes at a faster speed. So Bitcoin's adoption was extremely rapid. Ethereum has been much more rapid. And I think some of the other layer ones like Solana have been even more rapid than Bitcoin. And I expect that to continue because the base layer was there. Bitcoin was adopted so fast because the internet had, um, existed. Ethereum ex um, was adopted so fast because Bitcoin had um, existed and had been adopted. And the same with the other layer ones. Same with NFTs, which were even faster in adoption. If we think of the value accretion to the Board 8 Yacht Club, for example, it's probably the fastest value accretion to any asset in all history. It's about 250,000% in a year, which is truly extraordinary. So that's kind of what's going on. And if network adoption models are the key models, I've spent a long time looking at this because a lot of people still don't really understand it. And I thought, how can I model this in a way that makes sense to an idiot like me? Because Metcalfe's law is a complicated formula where we don't have the simple inputs that we can just put it into a model. So I went through all of the different things on chain and the various factors and found that I could best describe the price action of Bitcoin via looking at the total transaction volumes in dollar terms versus the number of active addresses. And that makes total sense. A network of two people transacting a billion dollars a week is nice, but it's not a network. But the same billion dollars a week transacted by a billion people is incredibly valuable. So Bitcoin transact more volumes than anything else, and it has a lot of active addresses. And what's amazing is the two charts, even though the numbers are wildly different, the two charts mirror each other perfectly. It tells you that price is actually a great indicator of network adoption. So it doesn't give you a lead, and I'm working on rate of change models and other things to give us some leads on this. But generally, it tells you cryptos are generally well-priced by the market. It's very efficient in what it does. Now, don't, don't forget, price is not an input in, in the model, and it works for every single crypto asset I've ever looked at. So here's Ethereum. Works perfectly too, exactly the same. And it works for, I've, I've seen it in all sorts of things from Polkadot through to XRP. People don't want to believe that. They want to believe that crypto is all about network adoption models that are unique to that particular crypto. No, it's the narrative that builds the network and the utility of the network. 
but they're all priced in the same way. So net-net, how does this all come together? It all comes together in what I think is a dramatic risk-off that happens over the next four to five weeks, much like the end of 2018. Those of you from the crypto markets will remember Bitcoin fell 50% over that period and put in the low. I think we're starting to see that kind of scary price action. The equity market as of today is has put in a DMARC indicator daily low, but this is around the month-end rebalance effects, and we know the month-end rebalance is going to be one of the largest ever, meaning pension funds to rebalance their portfolios have to buy a lot of equities. They're doing that. They probably need to get it done before the, the long weekend in the United States. After that, I think crypto is telling us it's all going to roll over again, and we'll see the big sell-off. I expect bond yields to continue to rally as they start pricing in the probability that the Fed have to pivot, and the economy's gone too far, and inflation is broken. I then would love to see oil break. I'm not 100% sure of that one, but I think it's likely. It's mapping very, very well oil in 2001. And oil in 2001, almost identical price action. You can overlay the charts and it collapsed 45%, uh, much like it did in 2018. So I think that's probably coming. That changes the narrative. And eventually the Fed, sometime in the summer, are going to go, and probably after the June meeting, they're probably going to go, okay, we'll monitor the situation and maybe we won't um, tighten the balance sheet yet. That signal is the signal for risk assets, I believe. And I think we'll see growth end of tech, which has been utterly destroyed and is down 70% plus, and crypto, and probably gold actually, start to outperform along with bonds. And those should be the phoenix that rise from the ashes. And some of these other more cyclical plays will do less well those are the things that have been outperforming over the last 18 months. The big question is, what is it going forwards? Is this going to be a longer recession, in which case everything rallies and then comes back down again and the Fed have to do a lot more? Is that what brings the Fed balance sheet in? Is the markets roll over and the economy looks terrible? I'm not sure. My, best, my base case scenario is a V-shaped recovery from a, from a absolute cliff edge. Um, but it could be something more drawn out, in which case we've got a much nastier equity bear market to come. But we'll wait and see. So it's a pretty grim prognosis, but I think this is the opportunity I've been looking for. I've been buying technology stocks gradually on a dollar cost average basis over the last couple of months. Um, I will probably go out another month and that will give me hopefully this whole low period if I get this right. Um, the weekly DMARC indicators give us between two and four weeks for this low to come in. Crypto is identical right now. We've got, we've got the bad signal of we need the dailies to get where we're going, and that's probably another week or 10 days away of this kind of price action that we've been seeing, which is pretty ugly. And the weekly indicators are somewhere between two weeks and five weeks away before we get the final capitulation lows. It was that DMARC setup that got me out of being short or out of my shorts and out of many trades in the um, pandemic as well. Um, and I take them very seriously because they usually lead to very good signals. So that's whole, my whole view in a nutshell. Well, I mean, amazing presentation. Uh, you absolutely did not disappoint with that. And I think one of the things that you know, we've talked about at the onset was really your ability to break these 
complex, especially right now in the world of macro, right? It's incredibly complex. There's a lot of conflicting views. And the fact that you are able to find the signal from all that noise always amazes me. One of the first questions I have is you talk a lot about what this could look like, right? In terms of tightening financial conditions, potential sharp recession coming, potential for another kind of risk off move and potentially a severe risk off move. What is it that actually makes central bankers, and let's use the Fed, you know, as 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 the bellwether here? What is it actually that forces their hand to come back to the table and and make a move? Right? Is it? It's been pretty clear that they're willing to sacrifice investors at least up until now in this fight against enemy number one, which is inflation. But does a let's say twenty or twenty five percent drawdown in addition to what we've already seen, and let's say the S and P or the Nasdaq, does that accelerate the timeline for central bankers to come back in on this, or is it really they have to see? the true demand destruction show up in the numbers like you're talking about? So I think it is the economy. I think every time the the ISM starts hitting 50, they realize, okay, the economy is going down. Because what does ISM 50 mean? It also means unemployment goes up. ISM 50 is almost certainty every time ever historically that inflation comes down. So it's going to give you that. It's going to give you the rate of inflation coming down. They know it's going to come down because of that. And and I think that they're going to find that, sorry, I'm just trying to, I've gone out of focus for some reason. There we go. Um, the rate of inflation comes down, the economy goes down and unemployment goes up. Now, if you listen carefully to what's going on with the tech companies, they're laying off people. Amazon said, their words, they were wildly overstaffed for demand. Everybody's built up massive inventory. So we've got an inventory liquidation to come, which drives down ISM dramatically and GDP growth. And tech companies are going to be laying off staff. Every single VC has kind of said to their, um, their investment class, hey, listen, you need to uh, you know, reduce your costs, reduce your costs. And I think that message is not lost. So that's what's to come, and they, they'll see it very fast if I'm right and ISM comes off really quick. And when you, you talked about how CPI and the let's say the traditional kind of inflationary measures that um, the Fed and a lot of people watch are more laggy than leading. If you look at things like inflation expectations, right, we like break even rates, for example, and how those have come off, you know, quite considerably over the last couple of months, in part because of a lot of things that you've talked about. If you're sitting there, if you're a central banker, are you even are you even paying attention to inflation expectations or are you more focused on what Main Street is really up in arms about, which is the headline CPI prints? I think it's both. And that's the balance they're trying to walk. As you said, break even, five year break evens are off 100 basis points. So they're down at 3 percent, at 2.8 percent. Now, it's not very long. If, if, we're, if I'm right in what's happening, those two year break evens are going to be back in the kind of two and a half, two percent range which is where the Fed wants it. So what they need to see is the headline rate of inflation come down, which is going to start turning down, and then they'll be okay. Now, don't forget, they started cutting in 2001 and 2008 and 1974 and 1984 before inflation peaked. So it is possible. Maybe it's where we are in the election cycle means they won't, but they're going to lose an election if they destroy everything. Because... If your purchasing power has been destroyed by the inflation and then you're out of a job, I mean, you're double fucked. And that is not good for winning an election or a midterms anyway. So this is going to be a bit of a loaded question, but one of my favorite things to do is just put you on the spot and just let you ref. If you're sitting in Jay Powell's seat right now, what do you do? It's kind of irrelevant because the market did it itself. I mean, the, 
the bond market did what it was supposed to do. It's like, fuck, inflation's coming. Let's raise rates. They raise rates. Now, you know, we don't borrow at Fed funds. We borrow at these money market rates that are driven off the actual natural interest rate curve. And it did all the tightening. So, and it's going to do the loosening before Jay even figures this out. So it's kind of, it's almost irrelevant. It's kind of suggests that you don't need the Fed except in the backstop scenario when interest rates aren't enough. That the Fed are kind of irrelevant in the equation these days, that the markets can do it. It's only in the really bad scenario when they need their balance sheet to avoid worst game outcomes. I know people are like, I hate the printing of money, but imagine if they had not in 2008 9. Imagine if they had not in the recession. I don't know how bad it would have been. So it's either a total destruction of everything or it's a destruction in your purchasing power. There's, you know, nothing comes for free. Yeah, and the, and the reason I ask that is because we've often almost joked about how the Fed is stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? There really is no, certainly no easy decision and really no right decision at this point because to your point, it's almost irrelevant what they decide to do because I think the read through on a lot of what you said there was in the short term, yes, there could be more pain to come, but long term, this end game around currency debasement the end game hasn't changed, right? And if anything, COVID and the policy response afterwards was really just an acceleration towards that end game. Well, also, if you step really far back, what is the big issue here? We've got too much debt. The 1940s and 50s, we had the same coming out of World War II. In fact, it was very similar because we came out of World War II, there was not enough supply of commodities and all the people came back in, back into the workforce and back into normal life, exactly the same. Commodity um, inflation took off, interest rates went up, the economy collapsed, inflation went negative, it then kind of had a rebound effect, and then eventually settled down. And over that period, how did the debt disappear? The debt disappeared from negative real rates over an extended period of time, which is you need to keep interest rates low or you debase the currency, and they had yield curve control. So you're basically debasing the currency keeping inflation slightly low, but, but higher than the interest rates. And you run that for an extended period of time. What was amazing about the 1950s and late 40s was it was a period of amazing growth. Equities went up 900%. The economy, we had massive fiscal stimulus like we're, we're going to see now in ESG and other stuff. Um, all the factories in America were built. I think we're going to see that now as supply chains come back and the rise of technology. That was the rise of TV, you know, domestic appliances, and all of the life-changing things that came in the 50s. I think we're set up for that again. So I actually think we're about to go into a golden age, which I know people don't want to believe, but nobody believed it back in the 1940s either, because you'd just come through two world wars, and they thought, well, everything's screwed forever. Um, and much like you didn't believe it in the 1970s, because you'd gone through this inflation driven by the demographics, but the net outcome for the next... 40 years was the biggest boom of all time. So I'm, I'm much more constructive than the mainstream narrative, which is this is the worst thing. Now, I understand that running negative real rates means that purchasing power doesn't go up. Wages are not going up. Um, so you know, owning assets is the only way of doing it. And assets should outperform debt in a negative real rate environment. So it's doable. And so does that mean that, the, that negative real rates aren't necessarily the boogeyman that everybody makes them seems to make them out to be because that's obviously a, a very constant kind of criticism around the current environment we find ourselves in but given that historical context 
It sounds like they're not necessarily all bad. It depend, no, it depends whether you're a creditor or debtor. If you're a debtor, it's great because the value of your debt goes down every year. If you're a saver, it's bad. But what does it do? It, it forces you to buy assets. Now, assets have generally roughly been in line with the Fed balance sheet. The only two things I've found that have outperformed the Fed balance sheet over since they started using it in 2008, uh, 2009, the only two things is NASDAQ, so technology stocks, because there's a massive sec secular technology adoption going on. Um, and the other one is crypto, Bitcoin. Um, those two things, because that's a, that's a Metcalfe's law adoption model that's very different than the S&P, for example. So negative real rates, I don't think is bad. I think it's the only way of reducing. So financial repression is the way of reducing the debt. You need to own the right assets to offset it. So you just need to make the right asset allocation choice. Where it's hard is for retirees who don't want to take risk in assets. So the retirees kind of get screwed, but the baby boomers are the people who caused this in the first place. So their retirement is not easy, um, and they need to be careful about that. Yeah, and I definitely want to want to come on to, to crypto in a minute, because we certainly have a couple of questions on that um, that we've gotten. But one thing I think that would be really helpful as well is, given the entire narrative and kind of outlook you just laid out, what is the common criticism to that? Or what is the other side of this argument, right? Most people, let's say, taking like structural inflation, sustainable inflation, like what is the other side to your thesis? Yeah, so there's two other sides and both have a lot of merit, but probabilistically, I think I prefer my scenario. The other side is the short-term impacts of inflation will continue and therefore it's stagflation. Um, and you know, that's another form of destruction, but you need to be involved in commodities for that. I understand that, but my work suggests that that can't be the case. I just give it a low chance. Um, now, does that mean that commodities go down? Maybe not, but they just need to go sideways for the year-over-year -year rate of change to go to zero. The structural story is more interesting to me. The structural story is that this deglobalization, ESG spending... Rising commodity prices leads to long-term secular stagnation. And that will destroy basically earnings in, in equities and destroy future wealth and leads to a co commodities 1970s bull market. There's a possibility of that. But I've thought through it at depth. And I think if I look at Tesla's a great example. Tesla are building these gigafactories. They're building them domestically. So Europe is serviced by Europe. The US is serviced by the US. China is serviced by China, right? That's the right answer to supply chain problems, as opposed to we'll manufacture them in China and bring them to the US. So he's doing exactly the right thing. Those factories don't employ many people. They employ robots. So I think there is the commodity demand from that. Same with ESG. You know, we need a lot of copper. Now, right now, there's demand destruction in copper, so the price is going down, but it'll come back because we need it and there'll probably be a shortage of it. But I'm not sure that the rate of change needs to go exponential, that it, it, that it increases inflation. It'll probably just follow the business cycle in the normal manner. So globalization, I think, is short-term, i.e. a rebuild of stuff, so you're buying some commodity stuff. But over time, you'll lower prices because you're using technology instead of people. 
And I just think that plus the demographics and the debt make it very difficult for this to be a structural inflationary time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and one of the other questions that we got that I think is actually a really good one too, when you think about trying to poke holes again in your own your own thesis, right? Or understanding, we'll say, your, your, what are your biggest known unknowns, right? What are the potential outlier risks, maybe one or two, that not only could threaten your thesis, but would actually cause you to change that thesis if you see X or Y transpire? I think the bond market will tell us. If we start to see the bond market pricing a new high from that chart of truth, where no high, cyclical high, has ever been bettered by the market, if it starts making a new high, then something has changed. Now, my best guess is it will change, but it'll change because the bottom of the range stops and we end up in a sideways range like Japanese yields have been in. And the sideways range, let's say, is between 1% and 3%. I don't think it breaks to the upside, but if it does, it's telling us something structurally has changed in the inflation and interest rate thing. And then the whole picture changes. Now, I wouldn't use a, you know, if bond yields go to, I think it was three and a quarter is, is the previous spike in 2018. If bond yields go above that, it would need to be confirmed for a few months. But that would make me say something structurally has changed. Um, now, could that happen if China invades Taiwan and global supply chains break too soon for all of these corporations to adjust to? Possibly. Or does that destroy demand again? You know, can, can we actually build in this higher inflation? I think it's very difficult with an old population. So that's the risk is that something structurally changes. So if you think of 1974 and then followed by 1979, which was the secondary oil prices, crisis plus the baby boomers coming in, that was a demand shock and a supply shock all at the same time. Could there be a demand and supply shock that comes out of China invading Taiwan or shutting China out of the Western economy? We have to be bloody careful doing that because that would be a gigantic own goal. Russia, we were kind of forced into it, but anything to avoid that with China and extricate them. I understand the world is going to polarize, and that's fine, but we need to do it quickly but slowly. You know, we need to give people time to rebase supply chains where they need to be. You know, we need to get semiconductors out of Taiwan. I know India's got a huge push for semiconductors. We desperately need someone like India to lead that. We need them back in the United States. We need them elsewhere because without it we've got a problem yeah it's, i think that's it's one of the things i find most fascinating about macro and just markets in general right is that you have so many people that supposedly have or seemingly have access to the same information right that's what makes that's what makes markets more efficient but there's at the same time you can have two people on exact opposite sides of a thesis or a call or a trade and seemingly have enough information to back up that, right? So it's just, again, just hearing you talk through these things is fascinating because you understand, again, what those potential risks are. And it's all, you know, a probability kind of weighted bet, right, of what you think is most likely to happen so, and then sizing the, positions accordingly. The, people, the, the best way for people to understand this, and I just reread it. I didn't understand it the first time I read it, but I reread it last weekend or the weekend before, was The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. I cannot stress how good this is because he does a real-time trading experiment and he writes it all down, every position. Now, what Soros does so well, he has this 
big picture framework. So he's got a secular view that he expresses. He then has this kind of business cycle view, which is where his trade really comes out. So you know, he thinks X in the secular theme, he thinks Y in business cycle theme, and he puts the trades on. And then, I don't know how he does this, it's truly unique. He then runs a short-term book, which can be completely the opposite. He just trades short-term, ignoring the long-term. And what he does is offset, he's basically real-time adjusting the probabilities of his big picture being right. So there can be whole periods of time where his short book is the entire opposite of his, of his, of his long-term book. And there's times when they both match. When they both match, he's levered. And he does the big trade. And you know, over the period of this book, he was up 148%. That he gave back about 30%. Fantastic to see. And look, I don't expect anybody else to be able to do what he does, which is to have two different time horizons in your book at the same time, both competing with each other. But that's how you have to think of probabilities. So I might sit down and listen to somebody I really respect who has a different view, and I will take on board that view and say, do I think, does that change my picture? Does it change my probabilities? What do I need to see to assume it's going towards that one as opposed to this outcome? It's a probability tree out there, and you always have to adjust to, am I right, am I wrong, am I right, am I wrong? And, you know, it's the least experienced people who think that a market call is based on a certainty. That's nonsense. It's just, it's based on probabilities, and you don't get all of them right. And remember, even if something is absolutely 80% chance going to happen, 20% still comes up and it can be wrong. So it's a, it's kind of, a, it's a weird world for people to understand, but what you try and do is keep assessing everything all the time without driving yourself nuts. And to not drive yourself nuts, you have the framework that's robust that you can test and ask yourself, where am I properly wrong? And what is my time horizon? And if I've got a long-term time horizon, how do I size it so I can stomach the volatility? This is what people are learning in crypto, right? It's sizing of positions. And, you know, if it is an immense secular trend, and like how I've approached it is 100% my liquid net worth, basically, in it. Now, why can I take that bet? Because I've got income and I've got other assets. So even if it goes up and down 50, 60, 70%, I don't really care because I've got income coming, it doesn't affect my life, but I want to be in the trade and I want to be able to average in over time so I can so I can ride that trend over time. Now, other people will say, well, I, I think you should trade it. And I've done both. 2013, I, I, I bought it, ran it all. Actually, that, I did pretty well because I bought it 200, sold half at 400, so I was in for free, ran it all the way to the top of the 2013 cycle, run it all the way to the bottom of 2015, then all the way back up into 2000 and, um, 2017 and sold out too early over the forking wars. So I've ridden the cycle up and down before, um, and I've also sidestepped the 2018-19 cycle. And in the end, I don't think it makes a difference, <laughs> which just kind of sounds weird, but you just don't have as much in it because you never have the cash you need when you need to buy it at the bottom and everything else. So I kind of think that holding the long-term trend is a better accumulation of wealth than trading it. Um, but different horses for courses. That's just my opinion. Yeah.
No, I think a lot of us could certainly sympathize with a lot of those views, especially right now, given where this market's been the last couple of months. Um, but switching to a bit more of a, let's say, an optimistic lens, you're obviously, you know, um, falling down and have fallen down that crypto rabbit hole incredibly quickly, touching a lot of different areas of this space. What is it right now? What areas of crypto and Web3 excite you the most? And where are you spending, you know, the, the most of your time? Like, what is it that really piques your interest about this? It's, it's everything, I think. Um, there's, we know, so how I look at it is, look, this layer one stuff, layer twos, that's interesting, but it kind of gets a bit boring after a while. And you, you, know, you don't mind picking some bets and they'll probably do well because that's the, the network that carries everything on top. I think the NFT, oh, let's do DeFi first. DeFi is still clearly trying to figure out how it works. I kind of think ETH staking is the big game changer for all of this because it's going to give us the risk-free rate. Now, again, people are trying to fucking hang me on Twitter by talking about risk-free rates, but risk-free rates are you need to be in the network. So you, if you're borrowing, if you're, if you're lending dollars, i.e. you've got bonds, you've got dollar risk, right? And you've got risk in your currency. But in ETH, I think you've got a broad-based currency which is not going away of which you'll get a yield, and that probably ends up being the risk-free rate for the space. So that may change DeFi significantly, um, and I think it will go less to being multi-chain DeFi world to being one or two-chain DeFi world, um, and maybe the other chains interoperate, but I think it has to come from ETH, and you take more risk as you go out. So that's I'm thinking through that, so I think that's to come still. Um, I also am very cognizant of the fact that if I add Andreessen Horowitz's new fund as well, I think my tally is 46.5 billion has gone into VC in Web3 in the last 15 months. Right? What that basically means is the space is very well protected um, in terms of the ability to ride a down cycle and to therefore build. So it's a, it's a great setup. And we know the next phase has to be the consumer application phase because NFTs were the partial unlock and the NFTs and social tokens, which I've talked about for a long time, I think is the big unlock. And that's all to come. Um, and that's the next phase. I think the whole, I think everybody realizes that we need to get it to the masses now and not amongst the same group of people nerding out on DeFi or the same people buying and selling NFTs to each other because that's a zero-sum game. It can't be a zero-sum game, but it is still because these ecosystems aren't growing. So the ecosystem needs to grow. That comes from changing the macro. The macro is the, denom the, the, the important factor here. Changing the macro, the macro changes, the space starts to grow. Let's say the Fed increase their ba balance sheet again in due course. The space really starts to outperform again. That'll be a bit further away. Um, we know we've got the innovation cycle coming. The innovation cycle coming this time around was DeFi, um, the other layer ones, the alternative layer ones, and a few other things. The next one coming, I think, is all about the applications layer um, and the interoperability layers. Those things are, are, are going to drive this next phase of adoption to get from 300 million users to, I think, 2 billion users very fast. And they're going to dovetail in with CBDCs and the regulation of stable coins, which I think is a good thing, too. 
Yeah, no, I, I very much agree. Um, so the final question I have for you before we wrap this amazing conversation is from your kind of personal portfolio standpoint, if you just look at your, your crypto exposure, right, which you've, you've mentioned you have quite considerable in terms of your, your liquid assets, your liquid net worth, how are you roughly allocated right now? Do you have any to little Bitcoin exposure? Are you all in on ETH? Do you also hold you know, a handful of other, we'll call them alternative or smaller crypto assets, like what, do you have stable coins? How are you allocated right now? Yeah, look, you know, we've all got the wallet of shame of a whole bunch of tokens that have gone down 80% or so. Um, yeah, and those were, I did that on purpose. I, I chose an equally weighted basket plus a few other bets, and I knew that it was high risk. So, you know, it was, it's not something that concerns me. Um, and within that would have been some of the layer ones, you know, some metaverse, some social tokens, all that kind of stuff. And that was really to see the space, see what's getting adoption, just keep in it and keep learning and just see how that pans out. Um, and then the bulk, you know, 85% of it is all in ETH. And then there's a small amount in Bitcoin. Um, feels that ETH wants to underperform Bitcoin for a bit now as we hit the final liquidation phase. But that ETH bet was a, was a, you know, a very good bet versus Bitcoin. I think that continues because of network growth is faster. Um, and I think what I'm looking to do is I think the next phase will be, okay, what is the, I think ETH will do well the next cycle, but like Bitcoin did, not as well as it did the previous cycle, because that's how network adoption works. And there'll be something, one or two other layer ones that will do very well. My kind of hunches of Solana and maybe AVAX, don't know. AVAX a bit complicated for me, so I'm, really, I'm not really sure, but interesting. Um, and then there's going to be trying to capture, okay, what is this next phase going forwards of NFTs and, and social tokens? And how do you even play that? Because it doesn't really exist to invest in right now. We don't really know. We don't even know what chains half of this stuff is going to end up on. You know, where the POAPs exist in the end. You know, my guess is Solana is going to get more than we think of this stuff. As more Solana wallets and integrations like Ledger, you can have these Solana and stuff like that in, it becomes something more interesting. But maybe it's not. You know, Solana's got its own problems that, you know, it keeps seizing up. So um, we'll wait and see. I've got no strong view yet, but there'll always be something. And then there'll be the fat tail, which is the thing you didn't see that goes up you know, a thousand X. Um, and who knows what that is. Uh, that just takes time to uncover an, and an understanding of the space. Yeah. I lied. I've got one very, very quick one for you because I shot my memory on something, putting on that institutional investor hat, right? And you obviously talked to a bunch of institutions, hedge fund manager, et cetera. Let's call that, I don't like the term, it's sophisticated capital in a sense. It, given your conversations with them, where are they thinking about this space? Are they going top of the funnel, Bitcoin, maybe starting to understand ETH and getting exposure there? Or are they thinking about the Solanas of the world? There are some who are looking at Bitcoin, but it's not so many anymore. It's mainly been, we want exposure to Web3. That narrative is easier for them. So, you know, it will be, if they put it on their books, it would be a balance of the th you know, three, four, five, or the top 20, or whatever, whatever way, they've, most of them have gone into VC, hence why all the capital's going into VC, because it's easy to get through your asset allocation committee. And then after that, um, you know, I've set up an asset management business for that, for, um, that has a fund of funds investing in hedge funds in the space. And that has a lot of interest, because 
hedge funds capture the alpha and the beta of the space without having you to figure out what are the tokens that you need to be in now. You know, if a hedge fund manager does, does their job, they're all over this. Now, some of them may, may focus on certain parts. Some do discounted cash flow. Some do multi-strat. Some do kind of thematic macro. You know, some do early stage tokens. So across that broad space of diversified hedge funds, I think that's been the right space. And a lot of the institutions have gone, okay, this is easy, much easier for us. Because, you know, we don't have real-time mark-to-market. We don't have Bitcoin on the balance sheet that we have issues with. We don't have custody issues. Uh, and we're not paying up for VC, which everybody's paying up for right now. Very, very interesting. I think that's a great note to leave it on. I mean, you and I could talk about this stuff for, for hours and hours, as we, uh, we often do. As we do. Um, as we do. I really want to thank you, seriously, for, for carving out the time. I know it's been a lot of time. You're very busy scheduled to, to chat with us. But I really do think this is going to be one of those foundational episodes that I know I personally will come back and revisit time and again. And excited to see how this plays out, you know, and, and coming back and adjusting, you know, some of the long-term theses or, or our outlook, you know, based on how things transpire. And you can then also make clips and put them on Twitter to say, look how wrong he was. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's, that's the only reason we do this. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. Exactly. Anyway, mate, good to meet you. And I hope that was helpful for everyone. Very helpful. Thanks so much. 